today we are we're stepping into our second series of, of our new sermon series called Jesus the Theologian. And this is a sermon series based on unique passages found in Luke's gospel. And they are uh, they are passages that Luke puts in on purpose. They've also been kind of ignored. They ignored in one way, not ignored in another way. Um, and, I, and, and I'm going to show us what I'm talking about that. See, since the Reformation, Martin Luther, Zwingli, um, Calvin, since, since this huge Reformation happened inside the church, there's there was a switch that happened. And part of, we have to understand the context of the Reformation. The Reformation of the Roman Catholic Church happened in tandem with the invention of the printing press. The printing press starts off and its first big run is of Bibles that become accessible to people. We start to see that the Bible, the written word of God, is now published and it's getting into the hands of people in, in pamphlet form, in codex, in book form. It's, it's becoming circulated. It's no longer the privy of the clergy. It's actually circulated. It's happening. And so the printing press is a technological change in history that affected the church, and it changed the church. See, before the printing press, everybody associated church with going to a central building, looking at images on stained glass that tell stories, and to be talked to by the priest about the stories of life. Very much, this is what Jesus did, this is who Jesus is, this is the way you need to live, and it's story-based. The technology of written word addresses us different than an icon or a story. An icon and a story give us an imaginative image. And psychologically, we expand those things. A, a still icon, we can stare at a picture of Jesus with a bunch of sheep and we can use our imagination about the, what it felt like and what it sounded like and what it looked like and, and what happens next. And so we're really able to use our imagination in an icon-driven world. We're able to use our imagination and we're able to expand ideas. Writing addresses a totally different part of the brain. When something is written, it actually addresses abstract thought. So abstract thought is very, very beneficial, and it allows you to create ideas upon ideas. It allows you to communicate clearly in the non-tangible world. It allows you to communicate, this is what we're talking about. So, so we're able to teach, and the word is didactically, because we have writing. And so you get this point one, point two, point three, point four, out the door, and you're done. And so teaching changed dramatically by the onset of the printing press and the Reformation. 
teaching became about the do's and the don'ts and the ideology and less about the story and the narrative and the imagination. So teaching went through this massive shift and theologically, the technology actually changed the way the church thinks about God. Technology itself changed the way the, the church thinks about God, which is really, really interesting. We need all of this because we're going to get to the text. And so, trust me, we're going to get there. So it changes the way we think about God. And it says that now the, the theology becomes very strict. You cannot teach doctrine through narrative texts. So no doctrine should be taught. This has actually been a holding of the church, uh, the Protestant church for a long time. No doctrine should be taught from any text that is telling a story. The reason behind it is stories are one-off things that happen. This is the logic. Whereas when you read a book like Romans, which is not a story at all, it's a sequence of teachings, when you read Romans, that is now giving you doctrine. This is what we believe. And because we all have access to this, this is what Christianity has become. Setting doctrine and teaching doctrine and good doctrine. And many strong traditions have been based on this ideology and on this belief. And it simply is a reflection of technology. But we live in a different age right now. We live in an age where technology is once again changing the way that we look at the Bible. And none of this is scary. None of this is alarming because the Bible is actually written in multiple forms. So there's a, there's a, uh, a, a a sociological theory called social cognitive theory. Social cognitive theory is a theory about how people learn. And social cognitive theory, when I reduce it down to its most simple form, its basic thesis says people learn through observation of behavior. Really, that's how we learn through mentoring, through observation of behavior, through experience, preferably not that of your own. Somebody else's is better. Um, right, Matt? <laughs> Sorry. Um, I've known Matt since he was young, and he's taught me a lot of things. And, um, and so, so we learn all these experiences, and, and, and we learn by experiencing and by observing. This is where it gets crazy. Technology has shifted and the way we learn has shifted. I want to go back to 2008 for a moment, or 2009. In 2008, James Cameron was working on this. James Cameron released a movie in 2009 called The Avatar. And it was three hours and 20 minutes of pure sleeping time. <laughs> um, except for there was really cool 3D technology in it. But really, it was a struggle to get through that movie. For me personally, it was long. I watched it once in theaters, and I will never watch it again. But there was one thing that I noticed about this movie. It was a three and a half, almost three and a half hour sermon on 
what's called neo-paganism, philosophy of non-interference and a philosophy of, of we are not going to overtake these people and we are going to honor the nature around them and their natural setting and the natural thing of what's going on. It's a three and a half hour sermon of neo-paganism. People learn by what they observe. Massive. Okay, so now, more recently, DC's Wonder Woman comes out in 2017. We've got Wonder Woman coming out, and Wonder Woman, in the last 15 minutes, tells you its sermon. This is the sermon of Wonder Woman. You, if you love, and if you love well, you can overcome the evil around the world, and you too can be a God killer. There's the sermon of Wonder Woman, and it comes out in the last 15 minutes when she leaves her, her tower and she goes flying off, and, and there's a narrative in the background, and that narrative is your sermon. So what's happening as you go through these movies, they're actually informative. They're teaching us. They're intentionally teaching us. Really cool, this has changed how we read the Bible. In the theology world, what happened in about the 90s is we started realizing this, the, the people who think about all this stuff started realizing this and started saying theology is, is hidden in narratives. Theology itself is inside narratives. The truth of God is being revealed in the stories of God, and so what were ignored for so long are now being seen as theological truths. And what we're seeing is the gospel writer of uh, Luke, Luke the gospel writer, um, is teaching all the time. The stories he's writing are teaching points. We build theology on this. The book of Acts, which was ignored for a very long time, is now a teaching book. It's not just a history. It's not just a story. It's actually meant to teach. Okay, that was a lot, but I really wanted us to learn that because that's really important for how we read the Bible. It's really important for how we read the Bible. When, we, when we're reading the Bible and we're, and we're reading a story, we have to read, here's the story that actually matters. It is teaching me some, something. It's not just something that randomly happened. It's not just, oh, Jesus was walking by one day and decided to tell a story. No, there's a teaching thing that's happening. In every single moment, there is teaching that's happening, whether it's didactic or narrative. So we have to teach it. One more story, then we're getting into our to our text. I was in a church office, and I'm in this church office, and I was talking to the pastoral teams. We were just chatting around and whatever, and as happens in a church office, except for our church office at Roughly, because it looks like a house, but in a church office, what happens is, you know, a poor person came into the church, not an attender, complete stranger, comes into the church and conversation between the people in the office comes to a stop because clearly somebody else, an unknown, has walked into the room. And that person who was in need um, simply said, hi, um, how are you? God bless you. I'm wondering if you could get, give me enough money 
to get on a go bus. I need to get to, and he said where he was going. It was somewhere that was going to cost about $15. I don't remember. Don't remember where he was going, but he needed to get there. And clearly he was homeless. You could just tell by his dress, by his smell, by his, you know, his approach, his candor. You just knew like this is, this is a homeless person and they don't have anything and they needed something. Well, the, the people in charge at that church said, um, well, you know, we, we'd really like to help you out, but we don't, you know, we don't do that kind of thing. Uh, in that way, we we help people out. We we've got this this program here that you could come to, and we've got this here that you could do as a church. But you know, we just don't give people money. We we don't do it. And so, uh, sorry. Have a good day. You know, God bless you. And uh, and and the person left with nothing. And I'm like, um, okay, interesting. And so it wasn't my place, but I was like, what was that? Like, what was that? We're in a church building, and, and, and the person couldn't get any help, and no, no money was given. And they, they, the, the people who were in charge told me, well, we didn't give that person any money because it's not going to help that person. That person needs more than just, you know, a, a, maybe a ticket. That, that might have even been a guy's. We, we don't even know. Maybe that person just wanted alcohol, or maybe that person was just, you know, scamming us. And so we don't do that because we just, we wouldn't want to be taken advantage of, and we were really interested in helping, and that's why we told the person about all these other things that we could do, because those things we could do bring us into closer relationship, and so then we're able to really help the person. But, you know, with this, we couldn't just help the person. And I, I remember leaving that office going like, oh, okay, okay. Here's our text. Luke, 16... 14, 15, 19, 31. Okay, that's broken up. And it's broken up because there's a really weird piece in the middle that you're just like, I don't know what we're doing. Um, it just doesn't relate to our message. So I actually just cut it. It actually becomes different messages on its own. So I took it out. Um, here's our setting, Luke 14 and 15. Oh, sorry, Luke 16, 14 and 15. It says, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things, and they ridiculed him, Jesus. And Jesus said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts, for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. You always have to say abomination really like powerfully because it's an offensive word. Um, <laughs> But it's an abomination in the sight of God. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with which, with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. 
The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in a like manner bad things? But now he's comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, there's a great chasm that's been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he could warn them, lest they also come to the place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. <laughs> okay. <sighs> wow. Okay, I've heard this passage preached about how I have to individually act, and there is truth to that. This passage is a, is a passage where, where I have to consider how I act. I have to consider how I approach myself and, uh, and, and how I approach the poor around me. But I want to ask the question, in the narrative, who is this passage directed to? Who is the passage aimed at? Is it aimed at a person? Did a person bring a question? Or is in the context it aimed at a group? At a system? At something much larger? And although things can be applied to both accurately, and I've heard it done, this context tells me, in verse 14, this context tells me that the, that the Pharisees, the whole group of them, are lovers of money. They loved their system, their religious system. They loved the fact that they went to church or in synagogue every single week. They loved that they got together and they were included and they, they got to be comfortable in their well-established building with bricks around them and curtains and sound projectors. Sound projectors? Those would be called speakers. We have light projectors as well. <laughs> and, and so they really felt comfortable in their setting. This story appears to be directed at a people group. The story appears to be directed at a religious system that excludes the poor. Jesus addressed the Pharisees as people who did not have a heart of God, and the story shows us the heart of God. The story says that whatever 
you honor here is considered an abomination and God does this divine reversal. And God says, my heart is very different than what you think it is. My heart is very different than what your system thinks it is. Jesus addresses the Pharisees as people who did not have this heart. See, the story is not just about a rich man, an individual. The rich man saw himself as a Jew, and his family acted the same. So Luke, 20, Luke 16, 27, we see that, that the rich man is begging, and he says, I beg you, Father, to send me to my father's house, for I have five brothers. It would be very easy for the hearer to say, you're not just talking about the rich man. In this context, you're talking about the brotherhood of the Pharisees. You're talking about the brotherhood of the Pharisees which is extremely important for us to understand. Jesus directs his message at the rich man and his family. Not just at one individual's peace, not just one individual's problem. Here at Promise Church, I actually believe this. I believe that we are a church that's being built on integrity and how we treat people as a community reflects God better than how we treat people individually. How we treat as a people as a collective under the banner of Promise Church does a better job of a, drawing attention to the name of Jesus Christ than how I treat somebody in my personal life. How I treat somebody in my personal life, I might just be a nice person. There are lots of nice people. I know tons of them. They don't know anything about Jesus, and they're lovely people to be around. But when I do something that's under the banner of Promise Church, Promise Church automatically directs all attention to God that says when we as a community gather together and do anything in Jesus' name as a, under the banner of Promise Church, we actually are being seen in the community as the people of God with integrity. The banner gives us a label that says, look here. This is what Jesus would do. So yes, as an individual, yeah, I carry the responsibility of carrying the name of Jesus. Yes, that's true. But as a church, that name is now amplified. The way we act as a community communicates a lot to our larger community, to our town. What we do as a community in our town shows the integrity of who we are. In this story, a rich young man and the, and the Pharisee system had the poor constantly put right in their way and they didn't do anything. The question that Jesus is asking is he's saying, do you, are, do you as a community hold a position of superiority over the poor. Jesus is addressing a, system, a systematic view or systemic view of superiority. And we find that in verse 15. You, you are those who justify yourself before man, but God knows your hearts, for what's exalted among man is an abomination in the sight of God. 
This isn't just a story, but it's how we, as Promised Church, treat the poor. And I am proud to say that this church is being built on integrity. I'm proud to say this church is actually looking for places to serve. And it's so important that as a church, we continue to get involved in things outside of us because that communicates that the poor that are right at our feet, the people who are in need that are surrounding us, it communicates that, that we are doing something and that we care. So there were two big mistakes that the rich man made. Rich man assumes it's enough to call out God through the father Abraham. This is a point of privilege. It's enough that, I'm inv- that I am addressed as a Pharisee. It's enough that, I'm a, that, that Abraham is my father. And in Luke chapter 3, John the Baptist is saying and saying, Who warned you? You think that you have Abraham as your father? Who warned you of the, ju- of, of the coming judgment? Repent and do the works associated with repentance. Oh. Luke's referring to that and saying, no, no, no. You don't get to just say, oh, but I'm a Christian. I'm good. No. Do the works associated with your Christianity. Continue to engage with the, with the community. This is so important. This is the mistake that the rich man made. He was like, oh, no, I'm, I'm good. I, I'm a Christian. The second one that he made was he didn't see Lazarus as a person. He saw him as a status. Lazarus was never an equal. When we address people who dress differently than us and look differently than us and have a different socioeconomic position or a different cultural background than us and we don't address them as equal, we fall into the rich man's mistake. And so these are two mistakes that that the rich man made in this story. So the warnings for us are very simple. We can't assume that our acts of service gain us God's, or our acts of worship gain us God's approval. When we worship on a Sunday, it's a reflection of gratitude for something that God has done that we didn't deserve. And our acts of worship remind us of our equality with the rest of humanity. When we worship, we acknowledge that God is greater than us, and he's the one who has come down. Therefore, we are equal to every other person that is not with us right now. We are equal as humans, and we are being called into relationship with God. And that's a very important thing that we have to remember. And furthermore, we have to assume that we are, we, we can never assume that we're better than others. Poor, drunkards, alcoholics, broken families, we are those people. We might not struggle with the exact same burden. We might not, it might not materialize the exact same way. But the same Jesus came to reach humanity, all of humanity, not the humanity that has it all together, the humanity that is us, the humanity that's us. So we, we need to be very careful that, that, this, that the system of how Promise Church sets up never lets us think that ignoring the poor is ever okay. 
As we, as a community, hold each other in check, we define, I started off our announcements by saying that, that Promise Church existed in, in the minds of the people that were sitting around me at the time, which was a total of five people, six, eight months ago. We now exist as a community. We have 128 people that have come to our church. We've got an average of 60 people, or sorry, 55 people that come on a Sunday morning. Any given Sunday morning, we've got 55 people here. And... That's where, our, that's where our community is. And we must hold each other to account that we never become the place where we go, oh, well, this is, this is just, you know, we're good. We do what we can do. We've got our programs. We must, as a community, as a place that carries the name of Jesus through Promise Church, we must be people that are accessible to the poor. The homeless person that walked into the office at the church. That church felt fully justified to send that person away with absolutely nothing. There's one more point that I want to bring out here. Really simple. It's just a sentence. In the text, Lazarus was just waiting for a scrap to fall off of the rich man's table. The text nowhere implies that the organization becomes responsible for solving global poverty. The text says, Lazarus was just waiting for a little piece of generosity, a little piece of compassion, not for somebody to fix his problem, not for somebody to change his social class, just for compassion. He just wanted to be treated like a person. And he died without getting that from the religious system that was around him. As a church, we can never be that religious system. We must be a church that expresses compassion. So I have one text message that's come in, even though I didn't cue it. The, the thing on the screen says, when Jesus said, when you serve the least of these people, you're doing it for me. So if a person's in need, and if you're meeting a need, you're basically doing it for God. Don't be like the hypocrites when you give. Don't let your right hand know what your hand has done. The Father sees what you do and, it's, and what is being done in silence. And for us, that becomes a community statement. As a community let us not. This doesn't fall on your shoulders as an individual, although, you know, with integrity as part of a community, you'll get that. But as a community, that's, that's what God calls us to. And so I want to encourage us because God is going to do amazing things in Bradford through us. We are a church that is being built on integrity. And this is a big part of our integrity. So we're going to leave with a song. And I just welcome you to worship in this song, even though it'll just be one, I welcome you to raise your voices and, and, and give God thanks and glory for what he has done because he has done great things in our life. And, uh, and so that is good. Let me just pray. God, thank you for this story that teaches us so much. Thank you that, that even though technology changes and the way we think about the Bible changes, your message still comes out in any way. Thank you that, your, that the Bible is written with so many layers that it can handle the changes of technology and time. And God, I just pray that we would be a church, as I've been speaking about, that we would be a church that shows compassion. In Jesus' name.